What's beneath the surface of true crime? Uncover brings you there with premium investigations that demand justice. Each season delves into a distinct case, from the inner workings of a cult to the disturbing legacy of residential schools. Promising new content year-round, Uncover will take you on a journey through explosive revelations with hosts dedicated to revealing the truth. Uncover, the best in true crime. Find it on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This music you're hearing, it's by a Quebec group called Les Cowboys Frangants, and the song is called Québécois de Souche. The lyrics are sung in franglais, a clunky mishmash of French and English. And the words poke fun at the idea of de souche. That phrase translates as old stock. It's used to describe Quebecers with deep French-Canadian roots. If you want to be really fussy, folks descended from the original settlers of New France between 1534 and 1763. It's sort of like when Americans talk about having ancestors on the Mayflower. And you might imagine that among the hardest of the hardcore Quebec separatists, you would find a lot of that old stock. Well, Francois Schirm was as hardcore as you get, but he was definitely not old stock. He had no French-Canadian ancestry. He wasn't born in Quebec. He didn't even move to Canada until 1957, when he was already 25 years old. When he did arrive in Montreal, he was looking for a fresh start. But by 1964, he was chronically underemployed, his marriage was falling apart, and he was broke. But Francois Chiram had a plan. He was going to arm and train a revolutionary army to bring about the independence and sovereignty of Quebec. This was an ambitious plan by any measure, and by August of 1964, it was off to a modest start. He'd found some bush north of Montreal that he figured would be the ideal training ground for guerrilla combat. And with a motley group of 12 would-be soldiers, he set up a base. And by base, I mean a few tents in the woods. What they really needed was weapons, and Francois Schirm had a plan for that as well. The International Firearms Company had loads of guns and ammo for the taking by anyone with the nerve and the wherewithal. So on a bright late summer afternoon, Shearm and four of his men piled into a stolen Pontiac on the way to a robbery. The streets were quiet. They were supposed to hit the target at exactly 5.55. Shearm insisted on military precision. But they arrived early, so they popped into a tavern to run the clock and down a couple of nerve-soothing beers. When the time was right, Francois Chirm emptied his glass and repeated one rule to his men. Nobody shoots without a valid reason. But despite his warning, shots would be fired. And in less than 15 minutes, two men would be dead, and Francois Chirm would lie bleeding in an alleyway. I'm Jeff Turner, and this is Recall, How to Start a Revolution. 
A bomb exploded today in a federal government building in downtown Montreal. Would you say that this is a communist-backed subversive group, or would you say it's French separatist terrorism? The damaging of a section of track, apparently with dynamite, has been blamed on the so-called suicide commandos. But they intend to murder in cold blood two innocent men unless their demands are met. Your letters have moved me to hope that we will soon be together again. I do hope the FLQ will continue to allow you to write to me. By 1964, just a few years after he arrived in Montreal, Francois Schirm was at the center of the radical push for Quebec independence. It was a very crooked and a very unlikely path that got him there. But in the strange story of Francois Schirm, you learn a lot about the allure of the FLQ message that he heard, a message of justice, liberation, and belonging. And to understand how that message became so powerful, you have to know a little more about the Quebec that Schirm arrived in in 1957. This is Chapter 2, The Stranger. When I think about the 1950s, I think bright hues and shiny chrome. Elvis in a Cadillac, Doris Day in Technicolor. With T for two and two for T. I think about young people making out in cars and generally throwing off the old rules. But when you talk to Quebecers who lived through the 40s and 50s, you'll hear a lot of them talk about la grande noisseur, the great darkness, a time when the Catholic Church was still in charge of education and health, when the economy was run like a branch plant to American industry. The bosses were Anglos, and the working stiffs were French Canadian. Over time, one man has become the face and the voice of the great darkness, Maurice Duplessis. In this world, there are certain fundamentals that cannot change, that have not changed, and that will not change. It was a five-year blip during the war, but otherwise Duplessis had been running the province since 1936. As premier, he was known as le chef, the chief, for his firm control of all the levers of government. And he used those levers to push a very conservative vision of Quebec. A Quebec where church and family and heritage were everything. This is the Quebec Francois Schirm found himself in in the late 50s. If you speak to me in French, I will talk to you in English. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. Jacqueline Lavoie is being very gracious about my butchery of her language. She's been kind enough to invite us into her home in Montreal's Rosemont neighborhood. We're here to talk about her experience of the early years of the struggle for Quebec independence and about her friendship with Francois Schirm. She was, after all, a founding member of the first modern separatist party, the RIN. And here I am, mangling phrases and struggling to comprehend her perfectly eloquent recollections of a turbulent era. My struggles with language in reporting this series have been a humbling reminder of the situation that gave rise to the Quebec separatist movement in the first place. Language and identity feel like very powerful forces here in ways they don't in the rest of Canada. Jacqueline Lavoie, Le Gouibert. Donc, je suis née en 1936, le 12 janvier, et les années du Plessis. 
Jacqueline Lavoie was not only friends with Shirm, she is also the embodiment of the radical transformations the province went through. She was born the year Duplessis came to power, so she came of age in the 1950s, but her early life reads like something from a Victorian novel. Her father was illiterate. He earned barely enough to keep them afloat. The family of ten lived in a condemned shed in the back of a house. There was a lot of suffering in the Duplessis years, she says. People were encouraged to have big families, but there were few jobs. And poverty sometimes meant having to give up the children they were encouraged to have, which is exactly what happened to Jacqueline and her sister. They were sent to a Catholic orphanage. But despite Duplessis' anachronistic vision, the modern world was beaming into Quebec through the television. His version of Quebec society was crumbling, the drift had been underway for years, but now Quebecers were leaving the church in droves, ditching the farm for the city, and making far fewer babies. So when Duplessis died in 1959, Quebec was more than ready to move on. Liberal Jean Lesage seized the opportunity and swept to power in the 1960 election. This is usually seen as the start of a period known as the Quiet Revolution, La Révolution Tranquille. It was a period of about 10 years when Quebec society underwent a radical but mostly bloodless transformation. The Lesage government accelerated change. It secularized education and health systems and took them out of the hands of the Catholic Church. And Maître Chénu, Masters in Our Own House, became the slogan for the times. At least that was the ideal. For Jacqueline, the Quiet Revolution meant an opportunity to enter the workforce, not only as a woman, but as a francophone, speaking her own language. But up to then, that wasn't the reality. It's not that they hated the Anglos, she says. It's that if you didn't speak English, you couldn't get a job. At the time, French Canadians in Quebec were close to the bottom of the heap in income and education ranking 12th out of 14 ethnic groups. And the great darkness had left its mark on the Quebec psyche. Humiliations and resentments around language and power had festered for decades. That created a political tinderbox where a few misplaced words could start a wildfire. To French Canadians, Mr. Gordon seems to have become the symbol of everything they dislike about the current state of affairs in the country. It started last month when Mr. Gordon appeared before... It's easy to imagine an alternate timeline, one where Donald Gordon is forgotten to history. But by the end of 1962, he was a contender for the title of the most hated man in Quebec. Things got really wild on December 11th. That's when thousands of protesters converged at the gates of a downtown commuter rail station. They set fire to a Canadian flag and an effigy of Donald Gordon. Now what, you might ask, had he done to deserve such treatment? In 
1962, Donald Gordon was 61 years old and the president of the Canadian National Railway. Back then, the CN was still owned by the federal government, so it was his job to appear before a parliamentary committee at the end of the year to present the corporation's report and budget. Pretty dry stuff, you'd think. But as the hearings were wrapping up, a Quebec member of parliament made a provocative remark. He said, I note one president, 17 vice presidents, 10 directors, and not one of them French-Canadian. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, Donald Gordon would likely have let the remark just drift off into the ether. But what he actually did in the moment was to reply with this, and I quote, As far as I'm concerned, as long as I am president, promotions are not going to be made because the person is French-Canadian. And well, that didn't go over very well on the streets of Montreal. In another context, the words might have been taken as a bland defense of meritocratic hiring. But in Quebec, in 1962, those words and Gordon himself became the embodiment of arrogant Anglo supremacy. And for people like Jacqueline Lavoie and her husband Gilles, the Donald Gordon affair made something clear. The changes brought by the Quiet Revolution were a little too quiet and a little too slow. From the head of her kitchen table, Jacqueline is telling us why the cause of independence felt so urgent. They were revolutionary because they had to be, she says. They had no other option. So she and her husband signed up to what eventually became the first modern separatist party, the Rassemblement pour l'Indépendance Nationale, the RIN. But for some, the Donald Gordon affair was the moment that the democratic path to independence closed and violent action became the only way. And that's why they started planting bombs in mailboxes, Jacqueline says. While the RIN and the FLQ shared a goal, a Quebec freed from its Anglo rulers, they had very different ideas about how to make it happen. Members of the RIN believed in democracy, in a non-violent way of achieving independence. It was a political organization with a leader and volunteers. They had membership cards too. Jacqueline is showing us one. It's got a little logo of a ram. They played the democratic game in pursuit of power and profile. And for the FLQ, well, when bombs and terror are your stock in trade, you have to keep a low profile. So membership was secret, and members used nom de guerre. As far as structure, it was composed of cells, small groups of like-minded radicals that acted more or less independently of one another. If you wanted to start a cell and call yourself the FLQ, well, that was up to you. The thread that linked the cells was a fundamental belief, a belief that there was no democratic path to achieve the version of Quebec society that they dreamed of, that and a belief that violence, or at least the threat of violence, could be justified to make the dream come true. That dream involved the liberation of Quebec from Canada, but also the liberation of people from oppression of all kinds. 
The FLQ philosophy was transmitted on the down low by means of newsletters and pamphlets. The need for secrecy meant that the FLQ had to remain in the shadows, and at times actual membership could probably be counted in the low dozens. But the diffuse cell structure made it nearly impossible for the police to extinguish the group. They'd shut down a cell only to have a new one pop up a few months later. The FLQ campaigns came in waves. Jacqueline Lavoie was always opposed to any form of violence. As for her husband, she says, things were a little murkier. He didn't want to join the FLQ, but he was, in a way, a supporter. It shows you just how blurry the lines could be in those days. So when François Cherm joined the FLQ in 1964, this was the political environment, a stew of conflict, intrigue, and idealism. I'm Jordan Heath-Rawlings, host of The Big Story. For six years now, we've been telling one story a day, every one of them about something that matters to Canadians. This spring, though, we're going deeper. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt, the inside story of Ontario's Greenbelt scandal. From political games to stag and doe parties, endangered species, RCMP investigations, and Las Vegas massages, you will hear the full story. The Big Story presents Pay Dirt. New episodes every Monday, and you can get them all by following The Big Story wherever you get your podcast. In a peculiar way, Francois Schirm's story reads a bit like a very dark alternative telling of Forrest Gump. He's this odd character who keeps popping up at crucial moments in history. It made no sense for him to be caught up in separatist violence in Quebec, but there he was. Somehow the currents of history put him in the middle of another storm. And at just 25 years old, he'd already crossed a lot of rough water. You see, life got off to a pretty bumpy start for young Francois Chirin. When he was just five years old, he fell 20 feet to the bottom of an artesian well. This was in Hungary around 1937. And by his own recollection, he should have drowned down there in that hole in the ground. But he was discovered and rescued. I was always getting myself into difficult situations, he says, but then I always got out, which was actually only partly true. A few years passed, and then there was the war to worry about. And as the Soviets advanced and bombed Budapest, his father decided to move the family to safety. Francois and his mother wound up in Austria in a small city called Amstetten. But war found them there, too. According to his mother, Francois would have to dodge machine gun fire from planes on the way home from school. One day he cowered in terror in a shelter during six solid hours of bombing. When it was all over, he learned that 145 people had died in the bunker where his mum had taken shelter. More than half of them were children and babies. Their little bodies were placed side by side in the street. Somehow, Francois's mother was one of just four people to survive the blast. Francois had to make his way past the mangled corpses to find her. He wasn't even 13. Now, you might imagine that those early experiences of war and displacement would have been traumatic enough to create an aversion to violence in this young man. 
But Shiram says the opposite was true. Je suis de la génération des enfants de la guerre, ceux qui ont grandi durant la Deuxième Guerre mondiale. He was a child of war, he says, and he was intoxicated by it. And when the war ended, he went looking for more. But he couldn't fight for his own country, Hungary. The French Foreign Legion offered this young man the possibility, as he put it, to get killed stupidly in Indochina. Now, I don't know how much you know about the French Foreign Legion. In old movies and TV, there was this trope about how if you got into a real pinch, you could always join the Foreign Legion and start a new life. Get out this minute and don't ever come back. That suits me just fine. Even Popeye joined up after a spat with olive oil. I want a one-way ticket to Algiers. So... You want to join the Foreign Legion, eh? How many guys you bump off? And there's always been some truth to that. They don't want murderers or other serious criminals. But if you pass the physical and the aptitude test and you're willing to invest five years of your life, you can enlist in the Foreign Legion. And at the end of those five years, you get a French passport if that's what you want. Depending on the past you're trying to get away from, that can be a pretty good deal. Francois Chiram wasn't caught up in a romantic drama, but he had some legal troubles he was looking to escape. And besides, he says, he did want to live dangerously. So he signed up and he became a parachutist commando. But this was all happening at a time when France was committing atrocities in some particularly brutal conflicts in its colonies. And that's exactly where they sent him, to Indochina, what we now know as Vietnam, and then to Algeria. While he was in the Legion, he'd made a connection with a young Hungarian woman. He'd found her through an ad in a newspaper for Hungarians abroad. This was a long time before Tinder, kids. The young woman had moved to Montreal with her parents, and when Francois left the Legion, he followed her there. But Quebec in 1957 wasn't exactly Shirm's idea of a happening place. He says he found it was like a cemetery. Quebec was, after all, still in the great darkness. Shirm wanted to leave. Instead, he got married, he had a kid, and he started a new life in what he'd later called the Hungarian ghetto of Montreal. But it turned out there wasn't a lot of demand for an ex-commando. He struggled to put bread on the table. His marriage fell apart under the strain, and Francois Schirm wound up isolated in a country that didn't feel like his own. In his work as a menial laborer, he was exposed to the humiliations felt by the francophone working class. And soon enough, he'd witness Quebec's young population rising up against those humiliations. François, il mesurait à peu près six pieds trois. Il parlait, il avait un accent. Oh, un accent étrange. Un accent étrange, <laughs> comme toi. <laughs> oh, oui, exactement. <laughs> Jacqueline Lavoie remembers meeting François Chirm for the first time. François, il s'est présenté à nos bureaux dans Laurier parce qu'il voulait devenir membre du RIM. She recalls him appearing at the RIN office, speaking a French that wasn't quite right, 
telling tales of war. François il était très intéressant à parler. Donc nous lui on l'a pris tout de suite. But he was interesting, she says, cultured. He wanted to sign up, but not everyone embraced him. François c'est un étranger. He was a stranger, she says. Jacqueline remembers that at six foot three, he could be intimidating. Pierre Boucou nous a téléphoné. Il dit, euh, Madame Legault, dites à Gilles de faire attention. Je sais pourquoi. The RIN president warned her that he might be working for the RCMP. Infiltration of the movement was a real concern back then. But suspicions aside, Shirm's experience of war gave him a unique perspective among the RIN activists. As a kid, he survived the Nazis and then the Soviets. And as a legionnaire, he saw the struggles of colonized peoples against their colonizers, which was how he framed the struggle of the Québécois. Shirm, of course, was not Québécois, definitely not de Souche, but Jacqueline and her husband didn't care. On n'a pas eu peur du tout, parce que tu peux être ukrainien, hongrois, russe, tu veux devenir indépendantiste, tu as le droit, tu sais. You could be Ukrainian, Hungarian, or Russian. You still have a right to your political opinion, she says. Jacqueline's husband, Gilles, and Francois quickly became friends. She remembers discussions about creating an army. It seemed like a joke. Il avait dessiné des costumes. Je te jure, Madame Legault avait commencé à faire des costumes. Il faisait des costumes de l'armée indépendantiste du Québec. Il, il était pour avoir une armée. Ah, oh, modern. <laughs> she was good, you know. And she made a few. Gilles even designed uniforms and enlisted his mother to sew them, which is strange, sad, and a little bit hilarious. Je sais pas qu'est-ce qui est arrivé. C'était des beaux costumes. Il y avait du bleu. C'était beau. Ça, c'était avant que... C'est drôle maintenant, mais c'était sérieux dans le temps. Et ça, c'était avant que François Schirm démarre son révolution. François Schirm était content. C'est écoute. François Schirm était content avec les costumes. Sa vision, sa dream d'une révolutionnaire armée était réalité. Je ne suis pas un fou de la mitraillette. Non. Je n'étais pas juste un crazy man avec un gun, il dit. By now, Shirm had grown fed up with the democratic approach of the RIN, and so he joined the FLQ. But he soon decided the FLQ approach was futile too. The movement was so fluid at the time, you could do just about anything you wanted. So Francois Shirm created a paramilitary offshoot of the FLQ, the Armée Révolutionnaire du Québec, the ARQ. I wanted my country, Quebec, he says. So how was he going to make that dream come true? With a weapon in hand, a beautiful Kalashnikov. Which brings us back to August 29th, 1964. By this time, Francois Scherm had won over a small group of radicals who admired him for his fire and leadership. They set up a basic camp in the woods just north of Montreal and they got to work on a plan to get their hands on some of those beautiful Kalashnikovs. They had a target, and one of the members, Edmond Gannett, had stolen a car, a Pontiac. 
But on the day the heist was to take place, their driver bailed out. Then they remembered a guy, Syriac de Lille. Mon nom, c'est Syriac. Even in pictures from the time, Syriac de Lille looks like the last person on earth to get mixed up in a jackpot. He's a little guy with bookish glasses. He's old and gray now, and his glasses are missing the left lens for some reason. But back then, Syriac was a regular at the Cochon Born. The Cochon Born which means one-eyed pig, was a cabaret and a gathering place for Montreal's separatist intellectuals and artists, as well as early FLQ members. He remembers it as a special place. Jacqueline Lavoie and her husband Gilles were also regulars. Jacqueline remembers seeing Québécois artists Raymond Levesque, Tex Lecour, and Claude Gauthier. This is Gauthier here. He's singing about a French-Canadian who dreams about murdering his Anglo-foreman. In August 1964, Syriac de Lille was 26 years old and working for Canada's Ministry of Defence. He'd also been in the Army and he'd worked at Canadian National, right around the time Donald Gordon was stumbling into the hornet's nest. So he knew firsthand how language could be a career impediment to French Canadians like himself. That left him with some pretty strong feelings about politics. Parce que le, le avait he says he felt an awakening in Quebec that coincided with the rise of the FLQ, and he wasn't shy about bringing it up. So while Syriac didn't see himself as a radical, he must have given that impression to his friends at the Cochon Born. Tout à coup, j'étais dans mon appartement, ça sonne la porte, le 29 août, là. Because one day, Francois Scherm and three members of his revolutionary army arrived at his door. J'ai trouvé qu'il était discipliné, puis qu'il imposait sa volonté assez facilement. And Scherm could be persuasive. C'était le chef, là. On l'appelait le général. <laughs> Puis je suis devenu le chauffeur du général. <laughs> Which is how Syriac de Lille suddenly found himself with a new job, getaway driver for the man they called the general. Ce que j'ai compris, la reine Elisabeth they explained the robbery plan and how a successful mission would cast a shadow on the upcoming visit from Queen Elizabeth. That part hit home for DeLille. He resented being made to swear allegiance to the Queen at his government job. DeLille agreed to the gig, but on two conditions. There would be no violence, and that after the robbery, he was out. The next thing he knew, he's driving a gang in a stolen car on the way to an armed robbery. They stopped at a tavern for a quick drink, maybe five, ten minutes. We were headed towards our destiny, he says, and we didn't know it. Le, le était déjà tracé. <laughs> when 
when it was time to go, three of them piled back in the car and headed for the shop. J'ai conduit l'auto jusqu'à Canadian International Firearms. While Francois Schirm and Edmond Gannett walked to the front door, Delille drove around to the back lane with the two others. They'd help load guns into the car while Delille stayed at the wheel. The day before, he was a mild-mannered employee of the Ministry of Defense. Now he's sitting there in the middle of a dangerous scheme he only learned about a few hours ago. The International Firearms Company was right in the heart of downtown Montreal. And back then, it was the one-stop shop for guns. In period photographs, you can read that big painted sign. It promised shotguns, rifles, and pistols, outboard motors, too, all at the lowest prices in Canada. Inside the store, the staff at International Firearms were just getting ready to close up for the night. Francois Chirin was the first one to enter. He confirmed there were no customers left in the store and took quick stock. There were guns of all kinds. Mausers, Brownings, Lee Enfields, definitely enough to equip a modest army. Schirm would later describe his feelings on entering the store as, and I quote here, a wonderment comparable to what a Muslim pilgrim visiting Mecca for the first time must feel. There are so many layers of weird in that sentence that I'm not sure where to begin. In any event, they approached the counter and Shirm asked to see an M1 rifle. The sales clerk removed the ammo clip, that was the safety protocol, and handed him the gun. Shirm quickly inserted his own clip, turned the weapon on the clerk, and declared, Armée révolutionnaire de Québec, vos mains sur le comptoir, et que personne ne bouge. Then he told the salesman they wanted guns and ammo, not cash. By this time, Gannett had pulled out his sawed-off rifle, and that's when the store's manager, Leslie McWilliams, appeared. He seems to have misunderstood what was going on, that he believed the gunman was just a customer being reckless. He rushed at Gannett, saying, Don't be crazy, don't do that. Gannett spun round and fired. McWilliams lay bleeding from the gut, unable to speak. He'd soon be dead. Sherman Gannett ordered the clerk to the floor. Then one of them ran to the rear of the store to open the back door. But on that day, just as all hell was breaking loose inside the store, and unluckily for Sherman and his gang, a couple of cops who happened to be nearby arrived at the scene. They approached the front door with pistols drawn. Then backup arrived and the cops converged on the back alley. That's when they saw the Pontiac. The officers approached just as two of the robbers appeared with their arms full of rifles. The police ordered them to drop the guns and hit the ground. As they moved towards the suspects, the cops were met with a hail of bullets from the back door of the shop. They returned fire and the gunmen retreated into the store. The cops followed. That's when yet another man appeared on the stairs from the basement. He had a rifle in his hands. The police ordered him to stop, but he kept coming, so they shot him dead. The man with the gun turned out to be an employee of the store, 36-year-old Alfred Pinnish. In the midst of all this, Shearm and Gannett fled out the front door. Gannett commandeered a taxi while Shearm took off running down the street, rifle in hand.
Police caught up to him in a laneway just a few hundred feet from the store. There was a brief exchange of fire before Shearm's rifle jammed. He'd also taken a bullet in the thigh. He tossed out his rifle in surrender. At this point, you might wonder what happened to Syriac Delille, the getaway driver. Well, he stayed at the wheel, oblivious to what was happening inside. He says that had he known what was going on inside the store, he might have run away. But suddenly, instead of his two accomplices, he sees two cops coming out of the building. He was arrested on the spot. He was sentenced to life in prison for his tiny part in the plot. In the end, he served nine years. Shearm didn't have much time for the FLQ's use of bombs. And for its part, the FLQ wasn't all that keen on Shearm's plan either. But once it was done, its members stood firmly behind him. And shortly after the robbery attempt, it issued a communique that read in part, We are not bandits or murderers. These are fallacious accusations by the police. We are men who love our homeland and we want our people to free themselves. Leslie McWilliams was the victim of his stupidity. At the start of the attack, the commando chief unequivocally introduced himself as a member of the revolutionary movement. The man should not have intervened. Suffice to say, that's not the way the courts saw it. Shearm chose to represent himself, which made for quite the spectacle. He wore green battle fatigues throughout the trial. During his closing arguments, he told the court how, as an immigrant, he was connected with the Québécois, a breed treated as cheap labor, exploited like he was. His speech lasted an hour and a half. It ended with, Vive le Québec libre. It took just 45 minutes for the jury to arrive at a guilty verdict for Edmond Gannett and Francois Scherm, both on the charge of capital murder. The presiding judge took the opportunity to rip into the would-be revolutionary. You've had your turn and now it's mine, he said. Your smile mocked what we hold most sacred. You've believed and lived by violence. You have had no pity for men, women, or children. And now you're getting what justice holds for you. You will be hanged by the neck on October 22nd. The mission was a failure, but it did make history. Edmond Gannett and Francois Scherm were the last people in Canada to be sentenced to death. As he heard the sentence, Scherm smirked, turned to his girlfriend, and yelled one last time, Vive le Québec libre, before being carried away by the guards. And just like that, the Armée Révolutionnaire de Québec was finished. Two men were dead and all the members of his cell arrested. The camp was dismantled. His death penalty was eventually commuted, but François Schirm would spend more time in prison than any other member of the FLQ ever did. Fourteen years, all told. Écoutez, devant l'histoire, il n'y a que des vaincus ou des vainqueurs. Des vainqueurs ou des vaincus. 
Quand vous êtes un vaincu, vous êtes un riche. Quand vous êtes un vainqueur, vous êtes un patriote. He says the winners are remembered as patriots, the losers are remembered as terrorists. By failing, he found himself on the losing side of history. The unrepentant clips you've been listening to were from interviews in 1987 and 1994. Francois Schirm lived until 2014. He was 82. So he'd had plenty of time to reflect. But his daughter told me that right up until his death, his only regret was that his plan failed so spectacularly so early on. He must not have given much thought to the people directly affected by the robbery. Leslie McWilliams, senselessly shot dead at 58 by Edmund Gannett. Alfred Pinnish, accidentally killed in the debacle. He left behind a wife and two sons, aged 10 and 1. While Sheeran would end up in jail, his story would inspire others to action in strange and surprising ways. It was like something out of a cheap paperback thriller, a plot to blow up national landmarks. The Statue of Liberty was one of the targets of four extremists. That's coming up in Chapter 4. But first... Monsieur Vallière, vous voilà rendu à New York. Qu'est-ce que vous comptez faire ici? Euh, ici aux Nations Unies, euh, ce que nous comptons faire, c'est euh, attirer l'attention des pays du monde entier sur la lutte de libération qui se livre au Québec. When an FLQ member cracks under interrogation, the ideological leaders of the group are exposed. That's coming up on the next episode of Recall, How to Start a Revolution. The archival tape of François Scherm that we used today was retrieved from a Radio-Canada show called de famille. This series is produced by Jessica Lindsay, Francis Pleurd, and me, Jeff Turner. Our story editor is Chris Oak, mixing by Lee Rosevere and Graham McDonald. Our digital producer is Emily Connell. The executive producer of CBC Podcasts is Arif Narani. And the senior producer is Tanya Springer. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.